The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. When he was 16, author Gabriel Garcia Marquez witnessed an encounter between an 11-year-old girl and her grandmother. Years later, after he was a published novelist, but before he was the world-renowned author he subsequently came to be, he returned to that encounter as it inspired a short passage in his masterpiece, 100 Years of Solitude. And then, a few years later, he wrote the story into a longer version, a story of novella length that he gave the title The Incredible and Sad Tale of Innocent Arendira and Her Heartless Grandmother. He was no longer 16, now he was 45, and he had developed the tools that would help him turn an anecdote, an image, a fleeting chance encounter, into fiction. We can marvel at the way a brief moment can become paragraphs in a masterpiece and pages written by a genius. We can scrutinize that moment for every detail, as if a few seconds under a microscope will tell us what we need to know about literature and the life of the man who saw the event and turned it into literature. But there's another way to look at the translation of life into literature or the inspiration of life that leads to literature, and that's to look at our interpreter, the mind of our writer, the crucible that the raw ingredients of life went into. There was imagination in there and a lifetime of encounters with books and authors and with history and with inspiration. There was a person trying to understand the world and trying to express himself to that world in a way that made sense to him and that could do something that literature does. Inspire, educate, uplift, inform, entertain. A moment that a 16-year-old witnesses an encounter and then decades later, a long gift to the world. We are looking at Gabriel Garcia Marquez, his influences what made him a writer, including the origins of magical realism and the story of Innocent Arendira, today on The History of Literature. go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining us today. Let's go straight at them. I'm going to have for you a reading list from Gabriel Garcia Marquez. What was this guy reading when he was in his formative years, his teen years? Remember, we started this with our guest on Tuesday, Patricia Engel, that amazing writer herself, who talked about the importance of that year when one is 14 or so, when you pick up books and Certain works just hit home. They open new doors, but they also confirm things. They intrigue you, but you're also smart enough now, developed enough at that age, that you're not just going along with whatever the author wants. You're not going along with whichever adult has put the book in your hands. You're saying, yes, I agree, or no, I don't follow. 
Yes, tell me more. That's a great way to put it. When you read an author, a page, a few pages, and you think, yes, tell me more. I feel that way now when I read Alice Monroe and Chekhov and Tolstoy. When I was a teenager, I, I don't know, Descartes hit home like that. I remember that. <laughs> Seem to remember what my friends encountered more than what I myself did. The stories that my friends told me about books they discovered. And the guests we have, we've had here on the podcast who have talked about this. Patricia Engel, it was Garcia Marquez and Ana Nin. I won't forget those. Mike Palindrome was pretty influenced by Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Salinger and Jay McInerney, and I watched it all happen. But what about for young Gabo? He was born in 1927, and so he was reading right around the midway point of the 20th century. Let's look at those years for Garcia Marquez, the 40s, the 50s. Who were the giants back then? Who would come his way? Usually that means contemporary authors, plus a buffer of 20 or 30 years or so, the masterpieces of one's own generation, plus a generation or two before. Sometimes there's a reach even further back, maybe into the 19th century, looking for classics, maybe to the ancients. Interesting. Luckily, we have a pretty good list to explore. Garcia Marquez wrote an autobiography that gave us the story of his life. It was called Living to Tell the Tale, and in it, he mentioned the books that most influenced him. He started when he was a teenager at boarding school with his list. His quote was, quote, The best thing at the liceo were the books read aloud before we went to sleep, end quote. And then he talked about some of those books. Some mentioned, some more than others, gone into in detail. Brain Pickings, which is a great website, by the way, one of my favorites, gathered up these books put them into a list along with some of the anecdotes that Garcia Marquez gave us. So let's do this. Let's take a quick break, then we'll come back with the 24 books on Garcia Marquez's reading shelf, his virtual shelf. We'll explore that reading list so we get a sense of the books that were important to him. And then there's another book that's also important, an author that was important who wasn't mentioned in this list, but who was hugely influential. Nevertheless, we'll tell that story too. And we'll look at how all of this helps us understand and enjoy and celebrate the end result, the fiction of Garcia Marquez, including the story of Arendira and her grandmother. All that after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, 
Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. Let's take a look at Gabo's reading list. 24 books. I've read most of them, and you probably have too. If you've been kicking around for a while, like me, or if you're young and hungry, maybe you've read them. It's a pretty good list, actually. I'd say it holds up pretty well. There was only one book I hadn't heard of before. All the others I've enjoyed. Let's see what we can make of the list. Remember that what we're looking for here are the way that these books might impress themselves on a mind which would help that mind go on to become one of the great storytellers and stylists and influencers of the 20th century. What helped him along? Chigozi Obioma told us a great story about this, too. The books that made an impression on him, the stories that he heard when he was in the hospital bed with his father, and then the remains of the day, which he encountered when he was older. And remember, Ishiguro also gave us a glimpse into the way that art impresses itself upon the mind when he told us about the songs of Tom Waits. We've had all those stories here at the History of Literature. That's kind of one of our favorite things to do, I think. Maybe we should try to make a point of doing it for each of these authors we discuss, if we can find them, the reading lists. So, anyway, what was Garcia Marquez reading? Which 24 books did he highlight for us? Who would you guess? What books would be on your list of books that you think Garcia Marquez probably read and enjoyed when he was a teenager in 1945, 1946, around there? I'll let you think for a moment. What authors would he be reading and admiring in 1945 or 1950, 1955? Are you ready? Okay, I'm going to do this slightly out of order because I want to save a couple until the end to help us see how the reading list flows into our next topic. The first one on the list is going to make Mike Palindrome quite happy. Number one, The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. The, the thundering success Garcia Marquez wrote, that's what he called it. Magic Mountain, The Thundering Success. The Thundering Success of Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain required the intervention of the rector to keep us from spending the whole night awake waiting for Hans Castorp and Claudia Chauchat to kiss, or the rare tension of all of us sitting up on our beds in order not to miss a word of the disordered philosophical duels between Naptha and his friend Settembrini. The reading that night lasted for more than an hour and was celebrated in the dormitory with a round of applause, end quote. Fantastic. I hadn't ever thought of that book, The Magic Mountain, being read aloud, but I can see how fun it would be if it was. Sounds like it was a big hit with those students. We've looked at The Magic Mountain a few times here on the History of Literature, including, I think it was episode 200. Wasn't that a celebration we had with Mike? It's one of Mike's favorite books of all time. He's read it many times. Okay. What does it give Gabo? I think the headiness of it, the brains, the thought, 
the thundering success. It's a big, weighty, substantial book with sustained characters, a putter inner, not a taker outer. You remember that distinction we've talked about before? Some authors are putter inners, some are taker outers. Thomas Mann in that book is a putter inner. It's a book full of ideas, a book for grown-ups. Ideas and things to wrestle with. Okay, number two is for kids as well, as well as adults. Adults too, but you could see where this one would appeal to those kids in that liceo. It's a pot boiler, a swashbuckler. What author does that bring to mind? Yes, it's our old friend Alexander Dumas, The Man in the Iron Mask another author we've talked about. This is a good one for the list. It's full of adventure. It's full of history. It has sweep. We can see that love of story and storytelling in Garcia Marquez's works, I think. He's not parroting Dumas. His literary project is different. He's not mimicking the style, but you can see a kind of eagerness in Garcia Marquez. He's telling adventure stories, too. In some ways, I'm sort of tempted to stop here after just two books. (laughs) Maybe we don't need the other 22. Magic Mountain plus Alexander Dumas and Garcia Marquez as a mashup of the two. That's interesting. Not quite complete, but getting us there. Here's what Britannica, that renowned encyclopedia, says about Garcia Marquez. Quote, in both his shorter and longer fictions, Garcia Marquez achieved the rare feat of being accessible to the common reader while satisfying the most demanding of sophisticated critics. End quote. Accessible to the common reader. What is that? But Dumas. While satisfying the most demanding of sophisticated critics. Well, we have our example of that, Mike Palindrome. He's about as sophisticated as you get. Isn't that Magic Mountain plus Alexander Dumas right there? And Garcia Marquez achieved that rare feat. Okay, we still have 22 to go. Number three, Ulysses by James Joyce. Here's Gabo's story about that. One day, Jorge Alvaro Espinoza, a law student who had taught me to navigate the Bible and made me learn by heart the complete names of Job's companions, placed an awesome tome on the table in front of me and declared with his bishop's authority, this is the other Bible. It was, of course, James Joyce's Ulysses, which I read in bits and pieces and fits and starts until I lost all patience. It was premature brashness. Years later, as a docile adult, I set myself the task of reading it again in a serious way, and it not only was the discovery of a genuine world that I never suspected inside me, but it also provided invaluable technical help to me in freeing language, and in handling time and structures in my books, end quote. Okay, there's another piece for our puzzle. This one gives him technical help, the freeing of language, the handling of time and structures. This was all helpful to our adult novelist. This one he didn't come to with the excitement of a young boy swept away by a story, but it was there for him to diagnose like a mechanic taking apart an engine manufactured by another company to see how it works. I always love stories like that, corporate espionage, where some technical wizard sees what some other technical wizard has done. 
a computer. Ah, oh, how did they how did they make it so small without overheating the circuits? Aha, look at this. They did it this way. I love that stuff. People who can take things apart to see what's in it. Just want to see what's in it. I just want to know how did they do it? I can figure it out. Some do it with their hands. Some do it with words on a page. Our next three books in our list, four, five, and six, will probably not surprise you. Three books by Faulkner. Most people know, I think, Garcia Marquez was a huge Faulkner fan. Faulkner was one of his heroes. We have The Sound and the Fury, As They Lay Dying, and The Wild Palms. Now, about The Sound and the Fury, Gabo says, I became aware that my adventure in reading Ulysses at the age of 20 and later, The Sound and the Fury were premature audacities without a future, and I decided to reread them with a less biased eye. In effect, much of what had seemed pedantic or hermetic in Joyce and Faulkner was revealed to me then with a terrifying beauty and simplicity. End quote. That's a good reminder for those of us who have tried certain authors, certain books, and found them not to our liking. Try them again. Maybe when you're older, maybe there will be something in there for you. If everyone has liked these books, chances are there's something of sustenance you can get from them, maybe. Okay, but life is short. You know how I feel about that, too. If it's not for you, find something else. Don't, don't torture yourself with something. Don't read, don't read it just because you think you should have read it. That's not a good way to read. Read something because you want to read it. Okay, we'll have more about the influence of Faulkner later when we talk about Garcia Marquez and the Nobel Prize, where he goes up to accept his prize and he stands in the spot of one of his heroes. He talks about Faulkner a little bit. Faulkner, who had won the prize a few decades before him, and uh, Garcia Marquez mentions that in the speech and talks a little bit about himself and his project and Faulkner and his project. Okay, number seven. Not one I expected, necessarily. Oedipus Rex by Sophocles. He talks about a writer, Gustavo. He says, Gustavo brought me the systematic rigor that my improvised and scattered ideas and the frivolity of my heart were in real need of, and all that with great tenderness and an iron character. His readings were long and varied, but sustained by a thorough knowledge of the Catholic intellectuals of the day, whom I had never heard of. He knew everything that one should know about poetry, in particular the Greek and Latin classics, which he read in their original versions. I found it remarkable that in addition to having so many intellectual and civic virtues, he swam like an Olympic champion and had a body trained to be one. What concerned him most about me was my dangerous contempt for the Greek and Latin classics, which seemed boring and useless to me, except for the Odyssey, which I had read and reread in bits and pieces several times at the Liceo. And so, before we said goodbye, he chose a leather-bound book from the library and handed it to me with a certain solemnity. You may become a good writer, he said, but you'll never become very good if you don't have a good knowledge of the Greek classics. The book was the complete works of Sophocles. From that moment on, Gustavo was one of the decisive beings in my life, for Oedipus Rex revealed itself to me on first reading as the perfect work. End quote. Oh, I love this. Interesting. I love it when 
anyone is inspired by the classics. I love going to see these plays. I love reading them. There's something elemental about the stories and storytelling in these ancient Greek classics like Sophocles. I'm glad that Gabo was exposed to the tragedy of Oedipus Rex. We have his friend Gustavo to thank for that. I would have guessed the Odyssey, of course. That seems clear from Garcia Marquez's fiction. I'm not surprised by that one. But I was pleasantly surprised to see Sophocles here. The next book is also a surprise. A bit of one for me. Number eight, The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's his friend Gustavo again. Gustavo lent me Nathaniel Hawthorne's The House of the Seven Gables, which marked me for life. Together we attempted a theory of the fatality of nostalgia in the wanderings of Ulysses Odysseus, where we became lost and never found our way out. Half a century later, I discovered it resolved in a masterful text by Mulan. Did I say Mulan? Oh boy. Milan Kundera. End quote. We can go through the the next 12 more quickly. I think these are all pretty straightforward. They're great books from the 19th and 20th century. Some of them are big novels, epic stories, and you can see the young Gabo getting some grand ideas from them. Here's how you tell stories with characters who stretch across hundreds of pages. Number nine, Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. That's a good, but we should probably do a, an episode on that one. I don't think we've done one yet. Moby Dick by Her- Herman Melville. Of course, we've talked about that several times, including with some special guests. Number 11, Sons and Lovers by D.H. Lawrence. All three of these stick to history pretty closely. Uncle Tom's Cabin, Moby Dick, Sons and Lovers. Stick to reality a bit. Moby Dick gets a little fantastical, but you know what I mean. This is narrative. If we're looking for magical realism, I'm not sure we'll find it there. Not in Uncle Tom's Cabin, Moby Dick, or Sons and Lovers. But we're, we're circling our main topic here. We can see where these books have influence on Garcia Marquez. Then we get some short stories in the next two. It's important to learn from those as well, the tightness and concision and the compressed ideas, the Aleph and other stories by Jorge Luis Borges and the collected stories by Ernest Hemingway. Imagination at work in two different ways with those two. Borges, of course, is not as tied to reality as Hemingway. It's hard to imagine Garcia Marquez not reading either one of these two, given the age he was and where he grew up and their influence at the time, two giants of the 20th century, but he also forged his own path. Let's do the next seven quickly. This is 14 through 20. Point Counterpoint by Aldous Huxley, Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, Tobacco Road by Erskine Caldwell, Stories by Catherine Mansfield, Manhattan Transfer by John Dos Passos, and Portrait of Jenny. By Robert Nathan. Now, Portrait of Jenny is the one on that list. The one, the only one on this list that I wasn't familiar with. I looked it up. It gives us a flavor. Well, look, all the books I just mentioned, 14 through 20, Huxley, Steinbeck, Caldwell, Mansfield, Dos Passos, 
they're all they all have fictional elements. They're not straight documentaries or creative nonfiction or anything like that, but they're firmly in the realist tradition. At least Steinbeck and Erskine Caldwell in particular. They tell the plight of hardworking people. They tell it in a way that sticks pretty close to reality. Portrait of Jenny is a little different, the way it sounds. I haven't read it. I looked it up. Quote, A struggling Depression-era artist encounters a young girl in a park who inspires him to paint portraits instead of landscapes. As he repeatedly encounters the girl, each time she is seven, several years older and is apparently slipping through time. End quote. Sounds intriguing, which also takes us to numbers 21 and 22. 21, Orlando by Virginia Woolf. 22, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Okay, now we're talking. Gabo says, it was the first time I heard the name of Virginia Woolf when Gustavo called Old Lady Woolf like Old Man Faulkner. My amazement inspired him to the point of delirium. He seized the pile of books he had shown me as his favorites and placed them in my hands. Don't be an a-hole, he said. Take them all, and when you finish reading them, we'll come get them no matter where you are. For me, they were an inconceivable treasure that I did not dare put at risk when I did not have even a miserable hole where I could keep them. At last... He resigned himself to giving me the Spanish version of Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway with the unappealable prediction that I would learn it by heart. I went home with the air of someone who had discovered the world. End quote. Again, if we're looking for influences, we can guess that it was the prose freedom that might have come from Virginia Woolf, might have helped. Also, some, some time-traveling, some sweep, some structure, some innovation. Certainly in Orlando, we would see that. We can see what worlds Garcia Marquez was discovering through these books and what that meant when it was time to discover or invent his own worlds. Which brings me to the two that I've saved. The last two on the list. Maybe the two most important. Let's take our last break then come back with the last two books on the list of 24 of the books that influenced Garcia Marquez. Number 23, The Arabian Nights, Tales from a Thousand and One Nights. He says, quote, I even dared to think that the marvels recounted by Scheherazade really happened in the daily life of her time and stopped happening because of the incredulity and realistic cowardice of subsequent generations. By the same token, it seemed impossible that anyone from our time would ever believe again that you could fly over cities and mountains on a carpet or that a slave would live for 200 years in a bottle as a punishment unless the author of the story could make his readers believe it. End quote. Boy, does that sound like a, an artistic credo or what? <laughs> it's pretty much all there, right? Number 24, 
The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. He says, I never again slept with my former serenity. The book determined a new direction for my life from its first line, which today is one of the great devices in world literature. As Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic insect. I realized that it was not necessary to demonstrate facts. It was enough for the author to have written something for it to be true, with no proof other than the power of his talent and the authority of his voice. It was Scheherazade all over again, not in her millenary world where everything was possible, but in another irreparable world where everything had already been lost. When I finished reading The Metamorphosis, I felt an irresistible longing to live in that alien paradise. There we go. There we go. The Arabian Nights and Kafka. Remember, we're talking about a writer who looked at a girl, an 11-year-old girl and her grandmother when he was 16. How does that turn into a story years later? When that girl was sold into prostitution by her grandmother... We could follow that story in a straightforward, realistic manner. We could be John Steinbeck or Erskine Caldwell and get everything accurate, invent what we need to, dialogue and so on, but stick to the world of what really happened. You don't read Hemingway or even Faulkner and think, well, this didn't happen. Or maybe I should say this never could have happened. You don't have rainfall of flowers and yet, in Garcia Marquez, you have in our Arendia, uh, uh, sorry, Arendira story, you have a group of smugglers who are fantastical enough the way they're portrayed. When the smugglers show up in that story, I feel transported to the world of a Dumas. It's like pirates. I know they're actual figures. I know they existed historically. Smugglers did, just like pirates do and did, but the way that they're presented in literature, in a Dumas or in Garcia Marquez's story, it feels more adventurous than real. I'm not reading a nonfiction book about actual smugglers and all the details of their lives. I'm getting the flavor of smugglers, the spirit of smugglers, the bizarreness of that profession, but also the familiarity, the literary familiarity of a landscape filled with literary archetypes like smugglers and pirates and castaways and holy men and wizards and knights. Cervantes. There's a book that wasn't on the list, but Garcia Marquez talks about him, by the way, another important writer for Gabo. But that's the thing. This isn't a view of smugglers where we read about their actual lives. We see them as characters, presences. And then we get details like these smugglers learned how to grow diamonds into oranges to make them easy to smuggle. That's the part that tips over into magic, into the marvelous. It's realistic, but it's magical too. It's invented. Nothing's there to tell us that that happened except the authority of the author's voice as he said about Kafka, as he said about the Arabian Nights. Nobody has ever learned how to grow a diamond in an orange, right? You look at that and you say, nobody would believe that. It's not true. 
didn't happen. But there's a truth to it as well. Sometimes you can get something of great value in an unexpected place. Sometimes other people come up with something that staggers the mind and they have it and run with it and they get incredibly rich from it. We've all seen that happen. Inventions that you wouldn't believe. In retrospect, they seem impossible. I just watched an interview with the man who tied balloons to his lawn chair because he wanted to travel three miles high. He went 16,000 feet. He had a, a BB gun pistol in his lap that would help him adjust the height. He could shoot balloons whenever he was climbing too fast, shoot some of the balloons. He had 43 balloons that was lifting him into the air. All this was planned out. He took off from the roof of his house. Two planes spotted him. Pilots of planes spotted him when he was up there in the air. You wouldn't believe that, right? I had a friend who worked at the, when I was working at the carnival, a friend of mine got this idea that he could spin medicine for his dog into cotton candy. And his dog would just eat it up. He had a hard time getting his dog to take his pill. He'd wrap it up in peanut butter. That's the big thing. The dog would always spit it out. He would just eat the peanut butter spit out the pill. So my friend developed this idea. Well, what if I chopped it up into powder and threw it in with the sugar, spun it into cotton candy? The dog eats the cotton candy. It just melts in his mouth. So he developed this. He thought it would work for, for pets and for kids. He went and tried to sell his idea to a pharmaceutical company. He just showed up there in the office with this idea. And they stole his idea and gave him nothing because he didn't know what he was doing. But imagine that if he had sold that idea and made millions of dollars from it, and he bought a, a castle somewhere in the sky. Now imagine if you lived in Alaska and someone told you the story, you lived in the 19th century and told you the story, or maybe even, well, let's stick to the, to the 19th century. You say, he has a magic machine round you plug it into the wall and things roar into light you have to start there because we're explaining electricity too right to our 19th century friend the power of lightning is harnessed in the wall and you plug magical objects into the wall and the lightning power brings them roaring to life and you can grind up this medicine another miracle the 20th, 21st century, this medicine. You grind up the medicine into powder and, and pour it into this magical machine that spins sugar into a confectioner's delight, a pink cloud of sweetness that you pull out and put onto a paper stick. And he gives it to his dog and revitalizes the pet with magic medicine. That sounds incredible, right? And yet... The incredible happens around us all the time. That guy that I mentioned who was flying 16,000 feet in the air on his lawn chair carried only by balloons with helium, a natural element. Is that so different from a father and his son building wings out of wax? 
and flying and getting too close to the sun? Is that so different? When we look at past civilization, we can marvel at that too. The pyramids are so incredible. Some people think they were made by space aliens. And in the Middle Ages, Europeans marveled at the achievements of the Romans. Stonehenge still kind of blows me away. How did they know so much? How did that thing get there? And Garcia Marquez looks at history. He had a little help in this, by the way. There's one more author we haven't yet talked about. Garcia Marquez looks at history and says, it's fantastic. Culturally, the past giants, there are fantastical elements. And literature can capture that sense of wonder by including fantastical elements. Doing so will heighten reality. And in some ways, we can do a better job of capturing just how wild and wonderful life is and how strange and extraordinary history has been. There are a lot of things you can really only, you can, it's hard to capture how extraordinary they are. You can only get at that feeling by talking about something incredible, by shocking the reader. A sunset is so extraordinary. Go ahead and try to invent a sunset. If you think humans are so great, Try to devise one yourself, not just the idea of one. Try to do it. Try to invent a round object that gives life to everything you know or ever have known, that gives off heat and light, that sits suspended in the sky just far enough away to warm us without burning us to a crisp, which goes around in a circle, and which we circle ourselves on our big rock, and then make that thing out there, that big hot thing, Make it put on a display all across the sky every night in a completely different way. Never to the same. Make it visible all over the globe in a different way every single night with the most beautiful colors. Now, that's completely realistic. We know that happens. And we can talk about the temperature of the sun and the nuclear reactions inside it and everything that go into it. We can have a scientific discussion about it, have a scientist show up to explain it and give us all the details. Or we can have a novelist to describe it only in ways that are actual, that it can look red and orange and yellow, but it's probably going to move in one direction across the sky, travels from east to west. It probably won't go back up into the air after it goes down not going to bounce. Probably won't streak across the sky like a shooting star. There probably won't be two of them tomorrow, but why do we need to limit ourselves to just the colors we can see every day? We can limit ourselves to that if we want to, of course. We could say as a writer that we don't want to snap the reader out of reality. We don't want to break that spell. We want to talk about this man or that woman or this society or this problem or this activity. And it might be distracting if we have a sun streaking across the sky like a comet or disappearing and then peering up over the horizon at midnight, coming back just to give us a little sliver of light and then disappearing again or suddenly showing up purple one day. Or we can have a novelist who says, you know what, the sun is so mysterious and so magical, so hard to fathom, so otherworldly that if I put this sun into the sky, 
And it's cold one day. So cold you can see the ice on it. Or maybe one day the sun just doesn't show up. Or one day it splits into two for a while and melds back into one. Maybe that's not just a trick or a gimmick of fiction, but maybe there's something accurate about saying that. Maybe there's something true to life about that too, because life isn't just a bunch of scientific observations and formulas. There are elements there, like wild expressions of passion and creatures that make you blink twice because you can't believe they're real. There's music that melts the stars. And that's okay. And that's good. There's no judgment here. There's only celebration. Literature doesn't have to do this, but it can. And so Garcia Marquez says, Kafka, look at Kafka. A man wakes up and he's a giant insect. Did that happen? Of course not. Could it happen? No. We don't need to go that far. But can fiction make it happen? Yes. Yes, the power of fiction, the authority of the author can make that happen. And in doing that, can it give us something true about life and about living, about the experience we all have here on this planet? Absolutely it can. I would say I've learned more about life from Gregor Samsa and that little insurance adjuster, Franz Kafka, who created him. Learn more from him than just about anyone. I learn about it. I learn about life from Chekhov, too. And Alice Monroe, who stick closer to the shore of reality, although they have their moments of departure as well. But Kafka's mind was twisted into a corkscrew. He was pressured and pressured. He was confined and miserable, as I have been in my life, and the end result was a feeling not like a doctor traveling across the Siberian steppe or a Canadian woman drinking coffee, looking back on the decades of her life, but a man in his room with his family nearby who wakes up in his bed and he can wiggle his limbs but he can barely move because he's imprisoned inside this new body with this hard shell and he's stuck and he feels disgusting. That's never happened to me. I've never been a giant insect, but I've felt like that. And no description of my plight. You could say, you could look at me. You could look at a normal person who's in that state of mind and say, yes, He's in a job he doesn't like. He's living a life of frustration. He's victimized by his own failures, his own shortcomings. That's all put him in a box. Well, none of that would describe, well, no, not describes. Let's say that's the wrong word. That's a bit of a loaded word in this context. I was also thinking of the word captures, but that's not the right word either. There's not something out there we're trying to get. Expresses. That's the word. None of that that I just told you, those details of my plight, none of that description of the actual expresses the feeling quite as well as Kafka and that bug lying on his back, dear Gregor Samsa, in so many ways, my spiritual ancestor. And you can see that in the fantastic tales of the Arabian Nights and the stories of Kafka that they were the literary ancestors of Garcia Marquez, too. It's okay to imagine things, and it's okay to blend reality with the imagination as a storyteller, and it's okay to use imagination when reading, too. 
If literature didn't require you to suspend your disbelief in the first place, it wouldn't exist at all. And guess what? We're starting to run out of time. I have a lot I want to say, but not enough time to say it. So, we're going to move along more quickly. I told you there was one more writer who influenced Garcia Marquez. We have Wolf and Joyce and Faulkner and Cervantes and Kafka and Steinbeck and Thomas Mann, all the ones we've mentioned in that list of 24 plus Cervantes. All those go into the mix, but we haven't mentioned yet a Cuban writer named Alejo Carpentier who used the phrase magical realism, even if he didn't quite practice it the way that Garcia Marquez did. So let's go back to the Encyclopedia Britannica to give us some context for all this. This is from their essay on Garcia Marquez. It says, quote, Then came 100 years of solitude in which Garcia Marquez tells the story of Macondo, an isolated town whose history is like the history of Latin America on a reduced scale. While the setting is realistic, there are fantastic episodes, a combination that has come to be known as magic realism wrongly thought to be the peculiar feature of all Latin American literature. Mixing historical facts and stories with instances of the fantastic is a practice that Garcia Marquez derived from Cuban master Alejo Carpentier, considered to be one of the founders of magic realism. The inhabitants of Macondo are driven by elemental passions, lust, greed, thirst for power, which are thwarted by crude societal, political, or natural forces, as in Greek tragedy and myth. Garcia Marquez was known for his capacity to create vast, minutely woven plots and brief, tightly knit narratives in the fashion of his two North American models, William Faulkner and Ernest Hemingway. The easy flow of even the most intricate of his stories has been compared to that of Miguel de Cervantes, as have his irony and overall humor. Garcia Marquez's novelistic world is mostly that of provincial Colombia, where medieval and modern practices and beliefs clash both comically and tragically. End quote. So, who was this Cuban master, Alejo Carpentier? He was born in Switzerland in 1904 and died in France in 1980, but he had a Cuban background and he wrote in Spanish. He considered himself Cuban. And he wrote a novel of the Haitian Revolution called The Kingdom of This World. And that book had a preface where he talked about what he called Lo Real Marvelloso. But what is the history of Latin America but a chronicle of magical realism. He wrote, Carpentier doesn't go quite as far as Garcia Marquez. Gabo writes of things that the reader doesn't believe are true. Old men with wings, diamonds being grown into oranges, the day that it rained flowers, and so on. Carpentier, though, writes about the history and geography of Latin America and the stories that happened in history. Remember, what Gabo had said about history being lost except through the authority of the author. He writes about the history, the stories that happened in history, Carpentier does, that are so incredible, they are almost unbelievable. They stagger the mind, but they're true. It's like that story, here's another story that came to mind. Ross Perot, remember him? The story of Ross Perot blowing up, I don't know why this one came to my mind. I was looking... <laughs> I guess I was looking for a story of some rich guy doing some crazy thing. Ross Perot had part of an island blown up 
He owned an island. He had it blown up. And he went underwater in scuba gear to see what it would look like when it happened. It's hard to believe stuff like that sometimes. How in the world? I mean, who would do? People have such strange activities. And the natural world, too, is sometimes so strange. In that prologue I was telling you about, the prologue to the kingdom of this world, which you can find online, by the way, the prologue, he talks about, Carpentier talks about this blend of the marvelous and the real, the way that it's been borne out in literature and in myth. Is there such a difference, really, between King Arthur's knights and Ponce de Leon searching for the Fountain of Youth? Carpentier says, these stories are marvelous. Yes, sure, but so is history. Full of marvelous events and marvelous characters believing in marvelous things and handed down to us in ways that make us rub our eyes in wonder. Stories can do that, but so can facts. He describes painters trying to draw a jungle with its incredible tangle of plants and fruits and just stopping. The sight of the jungle just stops the painter in his tracks, stupefied by the reality of it. Carpentier says, The marvelous becomes unequivocally marvelous when it arises from an unexpected alteration of reality, a miracle, a privileged revelation of reality, an unaccustomed or singularly favorable illumination of the previously unremarked riches of reality an amplification of the measures and categories of reality, perceived with peculiar intensity due to an exaltation of the spirit which elevates it. Wow. Talk about another credo. That could be Garcia Marquez in a nutshell, right? The exaltation of the spirit which elevates it gives it a peculiar intensity, and what is it doing really? A marvelous arising from an unexpected alteration of reality, like a miracle. It, but it's a privileged revelation of reality. Unaccustomed, we're not used to it. Singularly favorable illumination of the previously unremarked riches of reality. This is not saying... I have a world that's better than life. It's saying, I have a world in my mind and that I can put on this page that's not better than reality. It's better at depicting reality because reality is this wonderful, but you ignore it. You, miss, you lose sight of that. You're missing out. You forget how wondrous a sunset is. So I'm going to remind you with diamonds that grow inside oranges. That will help to put you in the right frame of mind that there are miracles around us every day. We just don't see them. Here's Garcia Marquez taking this to heart, taking this principle and running with it in 100 Years of Solitude. We want to talk about the encounter, Arendira. That's the novella-length story that Patricia Engel was recommending that we all read, and which I recommend as well. It's quite good. You can find it online. But here's the passage where he first 
talked about that girl and her grandmother, or the encounter he had had when he was 16 with this 11-year-old girl and her grandmother had first bloomed into fiction, which was in his masterpiece. Okay, quote, Francisco the man called that because he had once defeated the devil in a duel of improvisation and whose real name no one knew, disappeared from Macondo during the insomnia plague, and one night he reappeared suddenly in Caterino's store. The whole town went to listen to him to find out what had happened in the world. On that occasion, there arrived with him a woman who was so fat that four Indians had to carry her in a rocking chair, and an adolescent mulatto girl with a forlorn look who protected her from the sun with an umbrella. Aureliano went to Caterino's store that night. He found Francisco the man, like a monolithic chameleon, sitting in the midst of a circle of bystanders. He was singing the news with his old, out-of-tune voice, accompanying himself with the same archaic accordion that Sir Walter Raleigh had given him, and keeping time with his great walking feet that were cracked from saltpeter. In front of a door at the rear through which men were going and coming, the matron of the rocking chair was sitting and fanning herself in silence. Caterino, with a felt rose behind his ear, was selling the gathering mugs of fermented cane juice, and he took advantage of the occasion to go over to the men and put his hand on them where he should not have. Toward midnight, the heat was unbearable. Aureliano listened to the news to the end without hearing anything that was of interest to his family. He was getting ready to go home when the matron signaled him with her hand. You go in too, she told him. It only costs 20 cents. Aureliano threw a coin into the hopper that the matron held in her lap and went into the room without knowing why. The adolescent mulatto girl with her small bitch's teats was naked on the bed. Before Aureliano's 63 men had passed through the room that night, from being used so much, kneaded with sweat and sighs, the air in the room had begun to turn to mud. The girl took off the soaked sheet and asked Aureliano to hold it by one side. It was as heavy as a piece of canvas. They squeezed it, twisting it at the ends until it regained its natural weight. They turned over the mat and the sweat came out of the other side. Aureliano was anxious for that operation never to end. He knew the theoretical mechanics of love, but he could not stay on his feet because of the weakness of his knees, and although he had goose pimples on his burning skin, he could not resist the urgent need to expel the weight of his bowels. When the girl finished fixing up the bed and told him to get undressed, he gave her a confused explanation. They made me come in. They told me to throw twenty cents into the hopper and hurry up. The girl understood his confusion. If you throw in twenty cents more when you go out, you can stay a little longer, she said softly. Aureliano got undressed, tormented by shame, unable to get rid of the idea that his nakedness could not stand comparison with that of his brother. In spite of the girl's efforts, he felt more and more indifferent and terribly alone. I'll throw in another twenty cents, he said with a desolate voice. The girl thanked him in silence. Her back was raw. Her skin was stuck to her ribs, and her breathing was forced because of an immeasurable exhaustion. Two years before, far away from there, she had fallen asleep without putting out the candle and had awakened surrounded by flames. 
The house where she lived with the grandmother who had raised her was reduced to ashes. Since then, her grandmother carried her from town to town, putting her to bed for 20 cents in order to make up the value of the burned house. According to the girl's calculations, she still had 10 years of 70 men per night, because she also had to pay the expenses of the trip and food for both of them, as well as the pay of the Indians who carried the rocking chair. When the matron knocked on the door the second time, Aureliano left the room without having done anything, troubled by a desire to weep. That night he could not sleep, thinking about the girl with a mixture of desire and pity. He felt an irresistible need to love her and protect her. At dawn, worn out by insomnia and fever, he made the calm decision to marry her in order to free her from the despotism of her grandmother and to enjoy all the nights of satisfaction that she would give the seventy men. But at ten o'clock in the morning, when he reached Caterino's store, the girl had left town. End quote. Still pretty realistic. Still pretty true to something that could happen. And in the novella, it grows to something more. That's what I'm suggesting that you check out. The truth will still be there, but the marvelous is more heightened. We get to a kind of epiphany, a revelation, an ending that I'm not going to spoil, but that you might be interested in seeking out. Garcia Marquez taking reality, heightening it, giving us some miracle, and ending the story in a very satisfying way. Here's Garcia Marquez in his Nobel Prize speech where he talks about history in the fantastical way that Carpentier did. Listen to how his speech kind of takes us through history and talks to us about what history can do how history can blend with fantasy. This is the Nobel Prize speech. Quote, Antonio Pigafetta, a Florentine navigator who went with Magellan on the first voyage around the world, wrote, Upon his passage through our southern lands of America, a strictly accurate account that nonetheless resembles a venture into fantasy. In it, he recorded that he had seen hogs with navels on their haunches, clawless birds whose hens laid eggs on the backs of their mates, and others still, resembling tongueless pelicans with beaks like spoons. He wrote of having seen a misbegotten creature with the head and ears of a mule, a camel's body, the legs of a deer, and the whinny of a horse. He described how the first native encountered in Patagonia was confronted with a mirror, whereupon that impassioned giant lost his senses to the terror of his own image. This short and fascinating book, which even then contained the seeds of our present-day novels, is by no means the most staggering account of our reality in that age. The Chronicles of the Indies left us countless others. El Dorado, our so avidly sought and illusory land, appeared on numerous maps for many a long year shifting its place and form to suit the fantasy of cartographers. In his search for the fountain of eternal youth, the mythical Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca explored the north of Mexico for eight years in a deluded expedition whose members devoured each other 
and only five of whom returned, of the six hundred who had undertaken it. One of the many unfathomed mysteries of that age is that of the eleven thousand mules, each loaded with one hundred pounds of gold, that left Cusco one day to pay the ransom of Atahualpa and never reached their destination. Subsequently, in colonial times, hens were sold that had been raised on alluvial land and whose gizzards contained tiny lumps of gold. One founder's lust for gold beset us until recently. As late as the last century, a German mission appointed to study the construction of an interoceanic railroad across the Isthmus of Panama concluded that the project was feasible on one condition, that the rails not be made of iron, which was scarce in the region, but of gold. He goes on to talk about the horrors of the modern day, the bizarre and unbelievable horrors, the military coups, the wars, the weird politics of his era. Sometimes you would not believe the leadership and what they've done and who they are and how they came to power and what they did with it when they got it, how their actions led children into battle or tore families apart or made some people rich beyond our power to imagine and made others scrape along the dusty roads of life, starving and without hope. And then he continued, quote, I dare to think that it is this outsized reality, and not just its literary expression, that has deserved the attention of the Swedish Academy of Letters. A reality not of paper, but one that lives within us and determines each instant of our countless daily deaths, and that nourishes a source of insatiable creativity, full of sorrow and beauty, of which this roving and nostalgic Colombian is but one cipher more singled out by fortune. Poets and beggars, musicians and prophets, warriors and scoundrels, all creatures of that unbridled reality, we have had to ask but little of imagination, for our crucial problem has been a lack of conventional means to render our lives believable. This, my friends, is the crux of our solitude. End quote. He goes on to describe the inability of Europeans to imagine Latin America through the lens of their own history and to see their own past with the kind of foibles that they now impose upon Latin America. Fiction was a way to bring that back around, to bring history in line with the marvelous in a way that reminded us just how magical reality can be. It's sad and it's incredible, like the tale of innocent Arendura and her heartless grandmother. And what did he want? What good would it do? Is this just for nothing? Does it mean nothing? A pastime? He said, no, it's more than that. Here's how his speech ended. He said, quote, On a day like today, my master William Faulkner said, I decline to accept the end of man. I would fall unworthy of standing in this place that was his if I were not fully aware that the colossal tragedy he refused to recognize 32 years ago is now, for the first time since the beginning of humanity, nothing more than a simple scientific possibility. Faced with this awesome reality that must have seemed a mere utopia through all of human time, we, the inventors of tales who will believe anything, feel entitled to believe that it is not yet too late to engage in the creation of the opposite utopia, a new and sweeping utopia of life, 
where no one will be able to decide for others how they die, where love will prove true and happiness be possible, and where the races condemned to 100 years of solitude will have, at last and forever, a second opportunity on earth. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. We're partnered up with The Podglomerate, www.thepodglomerate.com and Lit Hub Radio. We will be back next week with someone further on the reality side of the marvelous and real continuum, Willa Cather. And then Nabokov, who gets kind of magical again, except that his subject is a very serious one, which we will take seriously. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.